From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Women at Work on Business Radio. Here is your host, Laura Zarrow. Welcome to Women at Work and our weekly conversation about how to get more women to join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Senior Director of Wharton People Analytics, for today's show on Working Mothers 2017 report on the best law firms for women and what we can all learn from them about changing corporate culture to support women and men throughout their careers. This is the 10th year that Working Mother magazine has released this list, recognizing the firms who have the best policies and most effective practices in helping more women join, stay, succeed, and lead within their firms. It's an amazing report that gives really great insight into the metrics that matter and the important role that culture plays in making these policies and practices successful. So whether you're a young law student looking for your ideal firm, a member of a firm looking to recruit and retain top flight talent, or a member of any organization that wants to do a better job of retracting and advancing talent no matter their gender or color, there are nuggets in here for you. And today we're going to explore all of this and more, why these reports are so important and the surprising things we can all learn from them and what it's like to work with win- within one of those top 50 law firms. Our phones are open at one eight four four wharton That's 844-942-7866. You can also write to us at businessradio at SiriusXM 111. Um, we'd love to have you join in the conversation and tell us, what are the policies like where you work? And are they working for you? Once again, that's one eight four four Wharton eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. So to start us off today. Our first guest is Suba Barry, and she's the Senior Vice President and Managing Director at Working Mother Media, where she oversees Working Mother Magazine, WorkingMother.com, Diversity Best Practices, and the National Association for Female Executives. Her career spans 30 years of experience in frontline business, operational, and leadership roles, where she's shown how strong and inclusive leadership can drive business results. At Freddie Mac, Suba was the Senior Vice President and Chief Diversity Officer, and she spent over 20 years at Merrill Lynch in a number of roles, including Wealth Advisor, the creator of the Multicultural Business Development Group, and as a Managing Director and Global Head of Diversity Inclusion. Suba is an amazing example of somebody who knows how to drive change for business reasons and for the ethical reasons that really matter and how to make them work hand in hand. So with that, let me say, Suba, welcome to Women at Work. I am honored to have you on the show. Well, it's my pleasure to be on the show with you. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, of course. I'm very excited to talk about Working Mother and the great work you're doing with the report. But first, I want to talk about you for a second. As I've started to learn about your whole career, there are these two major threads, driving business success and advancing diversity and inclusion. How did these two threads develop for you, and how did you figure out how to bring them together? Well, you know, a little bit about my background. My story began a long time ago. I grew up in India in a very conservative family where, you know, in my mother's generation, she was the first girl in her entire extended family to be allowed to go to university and get a degree before she got married. In the her first? generation. That's amazing. Yep, the first. So so girls would usually get married the minute they hit puberty, if you could imagine what that was like. So I became fortunate enough to become the first girl in my extended family to be allowed to actually leave home 
and go for an advanced degree and actually leave the country and come to the United States to study um, without having a husband to give me permission to do so. And I attribute a lot of that to my father, who in his own way was one of those early male allies, because in my mother's case, he said to his father-in-law-to-be, I really want a wife that is going to have a college degree. And that was the reason my mother was able to get her degree. It's just amazing. Did people look at him like he had two heads? Were people supportive of this? Did they realize, did he realize the radical that he was? Well, I don't know if he realized how radical he was. He just knew that that was something she wanted to do. And he had heard about that through her brother. And, you know, in India, marriages are arranged. And he was a good friend of her brother's. And he wanted to do this for her. And that is what a male ally does. A male ally is somebody that sort of figures out what is in the best interest and what does this woman want and find a way to make it happen for them. So you come from a long line of um, this, not a long line, but a strong root of advocating for women, respect for education and its connection to advancement, and this, this magnificent male ally. So we could see where this this um, ability to enter into this path in a dynamic way came for you. You were encouraged and you were given an education. But then there's the questions of what you did with it. How did you, because you went into real business, finance, how did you make your way to Working Mother magazine? Well, that's an interesting story also. I actually started my career as a commodities trader. So if you can imagine being in the front lines of of trading, uh, crazy trading, and it's very much <laughs> like what you what you see in the movies or what you hear about. Uh, and then I became a wealth advisor. My daughter was a year old when I um, when I became a wealth advisor at Merrill Lynch. And you know, I have to also give my husband a lot of credit because he was another powerful, amazing early male ally for me, who encouraged me to take risks, who supported me in my decisions because not all of those decisions turned out well. But he was there, right behind me. <laughs> backing me up. And and what happened was I began to realize that as different as I was, can you imagine when I was hired into Merrill Lynch, I was the first person of color, not woman, Just, person of color and so hired first, into my branch office. So their first person of color was also a woman making it doubly complex. And she was foreign born and she had this pronounced accent. She looked different. Everything about her was different. So I always sort of look at my, my manager and I sort of wonder what, was, what went through his head when he hired me. He later told me that supposedly, and I think I did, I threatened him with taking every good account away from his office if he didn't hire me. So you were playing hardball. <laughs> so somewhere the commodity trading paid off, I guess. So anyway, I came into Merrill Lynch as a wealth advisor, and I became very, very successful. And I looked around me two, three, four years later, and I still didn't find anybody who looked like me. And, and when I challenged my manager, he gave me every reason why someone like myself should not have been successful. You know, you don't have any natural networks. You don't have uh, family in this country. All of the reasons that he created to say it's going to be hard for you to build your book of business. And yet I said to him, I'm one of the top producers at Merrill out of 16,000. Why would you not pack the place with people like me? And I began to appreciate how difficult it was for somebody that didn't kind of fit a mold. 
and I began to realize all the barriers that existed for women and people of color in organizations like mine. And that was the motivation to go help start the Multicultural Business Development Unit at Merrill Lynch to focus on diverse communities to show the company how much business there was to be done in these communities. You're bringing up two points that I think are important, and I want to tease them apart. So one of them is recognizing that you may not, you don't look like anybody else there, and yet you're excelling. So there's got to be something about who you are, that if there were more of you, there might be more success like this. But the other thing that you're pointing out is a multicultural business development group. That's about the businesses being multicultural. So you found an untapped market. Well, I found actually a market that traditional brokerage houses like Merrill Lynch and Morgan Stanley and others were really not tapping into and pointed out to them that there was amazing wealth being built in these communities and they were doing business with banks and insurance companies and we brokerage houses were being left in the dust. And and that kind of loyalty is hard to to pry away once it gets set Mm -hmm. in a place. And so what I pointed out to was the fact that in the community that I hung out in, say, let's just take my community, the South Asian Indian community, there were wealthy doctors, there were wealthy tech entrepreneurs, there were wealthy hotel and motel owners. There was so much wealth in that community, and yet we never recognized it because we sort of marginalized it. And remember, when I first came to this country and early in my tenure at Merrill, being Indian wasn't quite as hip. Bollywood hadn't really found its way onto the mainstream. So so when people saw you, you were far more likely to be a caricature that people could make fun of as opposed to somebody that people recognized as, wow, look at the success coming from this. So in some ways, I had to open that door to show them what was possible with this. And I will also say to you that unless I had built personal credibility by becoming mm-hmm. successful Anything I told them about my community, about any other opportunity, would have fallen on somewhat deaf ears. So I want to underline the fact that before you go in and start to really propose things, find a way to be personally successful and someone credible and trustworthy yourself. Yes, and because that's how you're going to get these people to listen to you, especially when you're a new kind of voice. So that process of where you emerged both as a a force on your own and one that could both bring more people into the dialogue and extend its positive impact on business sounds like it's still what you're doing today. You're just doing it at Working Mother Magazine. You're exactly right. So uh, I then, in in the course of my, my career at Merrill, found out that while we were very happy to do business with these communities, we were still not hiring enough. And that's how I ended up being global head of diversity and inclusion mm-hmm. at Merrill, to point to the fact that diversity of thoughts and perspectives and ideas sitting around a table pro- produced outcomes that were far better than a homogenous group ever could. And really talking at the core of it to the power of innovating as, you know, as being one of the outcomes that comes from having diversity of thoughts and perspectives, and that means counting heads too. Right. So, and, and in course of that, I began to really look at other organizations and the power of organizations like Working Mother Media, like Diversity Best Practices, like NAFI, to be able to tell this powerful story using data, using the power of the press, in putting the word out about what was possible. And at Working Mother, one of the ways in which we do it is through our surveys. 
We're best known for our 100 best companies for working mothers as 31 years old, but we're very proud of our best law firms for women initiative, which is 10 years old, as you said. And what's interesting about that is, uh, fortunately or unfortunately, uh, law firms uh, really use these um, law schools as feeder pools, and when you look at the numbers of lawyers coming out of them, there's a pretty even mix. And yet, when you look at how they enter law firms and how they sort of rise in the ranks, um, it's disheartening almost to see how uh, the percentage of female equity partners has really grown at a very, very slow pace. Yes, and it's twofold. I noticed something in the report that, first of all, there's been, in the last two years, no fundamental change in the percentages of non-equity and equity partners, and that the number of those that are women, not to mention the number of those equity partners who are women and non-white, it's a startlingly small number. And that is what we try to shed a light on. And what we do is we showcase and support our best firms. There are 50 firms that we recognize. We we celebrate them. We honor them. But we also want to point out policies, programs. Mm -hmm. And not only do we call out the policies and programs, we call out the usage rates. So you may be amazing and you may say, I provide on an average 16 weeks of paid leave. And by the way, that is one week more than there was last year on an average. And yet, the average number of weeks of maternity leave taken by a female lawyer has stayed the same at 14. So what does it say about the culture in the organization? What does it say about the work style? When that number, you may increase the number of weeks, but if nobody takes the leave, then did it really matter? Right. Or was it just bragging rights for you? Right. And so it means it's both um, money left on the table in one form of another and an empty promise. Exactly. So I want to break this down for a minute because one of the things that um, I thought was really great in the report is that it makes clear that there are there are um, factors that can be part of a benefits package and a culture? What are the things that um, you look for to see do they exist and are they offered? And then there are the measures against those factors. So like you said, how much parental leave do you get? And is it maternity leave, paternity leave, or adoption leave, or all of the above? And then how much, how, who's taking it? And to me, that seems like one of those critical ways of examining the issues to get to the bottom of not who's offering a great benefits package, but where can it really be put to use? The other part that's really interesting about it is uh, this notion of working flexibly has become common language, not just at law firms, but across the board. Mm -hmm. And working flexibly, people immediately sort of assume it's work from home, working remotely. Remember, there are many, many facets of it. And this does not just apply to working mothers or working parents or single parents. It applies to everybody because the next generation is demanding thanks to technology mm-hmm. and thanks to that generation, they are demanding that they be allowed to work where they feel the most comfortable delivering their very best product. So this isn't only, uh, this is about many things at once. So these policies, well, we often discuss them in terms of how they impact women at work. They're really about how do you cultivate a culture of work that's going to bring you great talent and allow them to be happy and productive, regardless of whether they're parenting. 
spot on. And, and again, for that, corporate culture must change to start to measure output instead of input. Oh. And what I mean by that is in the absence of being able to measure how productive somebody is based on what they are delivering to you, you are left with counting heads and counting hours. Rather than counting what they actually contribute and develop. Exactly. By the way, this is Women at Work on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111, and I'm your host, Laura Zarrow. I'm talking with the amazing Suba Barry of Working Mother Media about their new report on the best law firms for women. If you have a question about what you're discussing or you'd like to share with us what the culture is like in your workplace, we'd love to hear about it. Give us a call at 1-844-WHARTON. That's one 1- Eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. So, Sue, but when this kind of report is being um, developed and a survey is sent out, how are you determining what the factors are that you're going to um, record and measure every year? So, we have a sort of foundation of questions, and at the end of each. Um, year, we relook at those questions. We check to see which ones are still relevant. We tweak them uh, based on what we are hearing, the feedback that we are hearing, both from the women as well as from the law firms. So I think that that one of the things that we have recognized this year, we've we've sort of always focused on it, but we're really shining a light on it this year, is this notion that think about who the law firms do business with. Yes, there are individuals who go to the law firms and and want uh, uh, you know to 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 be protected against X Y Z. But a lot of their customers and clients are corporate, large corporations, and where the general counsels of those corporations may hire these law firms for their projects. And so the ability for us to understand how these large corporations can exert their influence. Mm. and change how these law firms start to look at diversity and inclusion has become a new element that we are injecting into this year's conference. We actually have an annual summit. This year's summit is going to be in October in Chicago. And one of the things that we recognized was that if we could get eight or ten general counsels or senior people from large corporations' law departments to come in and actually speak to these law firms about, here are the things we're looking for. We want more vendor diversity. That means we want you, law firm, to be able to have female equity partners that represent you at our firm. This is how we would like to see you pay them. We want to see pay equity. If these companies start to demand that, can you imagine what that would motivate That's the law a huge force for change. I want to back up for a second, because I don't know if our listeners know that the this is a two-pronged effort that you make it's not just that you release that you do the survey and issue the report and have magazine articles on it so you're sharing what you learn broadly but there's an event that you organize with the winners the firms that are being honored and that's what you're talking about right now and then how you're bringing these firms in together with these with their corporate clients correct Exactly. So usually what would happen is at this event, the morning half would be uh, sort of dedicated to uh, more junior lawyers within firms who can come up and look at ways in which they can build their personal brand, build confidence, et cetera, et cetera, and sort of progress their career. Then we have an awards luncheon where we honor the 50 companies. Usually at that forum, we either have a general counsel or a managing partner of a law firm come in and give an eloquent talk about you know what is happening in their firm and what they think is is going to continue to keep change happening. 
But this year, we decided that we would take a slightly different approach. And after this, the, the afternoon luncheon is done, by the way, we're going to have a panel discussion at lunch uh, where we hope to get uh, a general counsel from a large corporation, a senior law partner from a law firm, and somebody that is leading diversity and inclusion at the company to really talk about this three-legged stool and how all three elements can, can play a role in, in creating progress. And so this is part of a recognition that this is an ongoing process. Just because you make the list one year doesn't mean you're done and the work is over. And that part of what you're doing with Working Mother Media, and I think with the ABA, is trying to figure out how can we keep growing in this regard. Exactly. So when you talk about the firms that they do business with and what a positive force they can be in igniting change and raising the bar. Um, isn't there a flip side to that? Don't those firms, particularly when their own cultures have not evolved, exert a pressure on the law firms um, that may keep them stuck in their old cultural habits? And how do you get past that? Well, that's an interesting question that you ask. So what we have done is we have been very, very targeted about choosing firms that have broadly made a commitment to diversity and inclusion. And what's interesting about it is everybody has it. If you go to any firm's website, you're going to see a large proclamation by their <laughs> CEO talking about you know how their, their commitment to diversity and inclusion is there and is ongoing. What we have is the advantage of knowing which of those firms actually walk the talk. Right, because this is one of the other research reports that Working Mother has done, correct? Exactly. So, so we do leverage that and use that, and we start with those firms. We want to show them how being more diverse and being more inclusive, leveraging your male allies early in the process, ultimately can lead to win-wins for both the companies as well as the law firms. And we would like everybody to want to emulate the best firms. So if you say to a company, here is a law firm that has, you know, when you look at equity partners, Frankfurt, Kernet, Klein, and Seltz in New York City has 38% women equity partners as compared to the national average of 18% and our best law firm average of 20%. So should you not be looking at them to yes. see what it is that they're doing? That's what we want to, that's what we want to call out. You know, a right. company that yeah, because you're not just holding them up as an example. You're also giving us all of us, um, as well as aspiring firms, almost a checklist of things that we can look at and say, do we offer these and do we make it safe to make use of these? One of the things I thought was so interesting in the study is um, how you're assessing. Is there punishment or exclusion from leadership roles or partnership for using benefits? Could you talk about why that's so important and how you suss that out? So when you really look at um, whether it's working flexibly or taking maternity leave, paternity leave, etc., when we see a big gap between what is offered and the usage, that is something we call out to firms. And that is part of the criteria. So we want a combination of transparency. Firstly, we want these firms to say, we're going to share our data. Because I have to tell you, it takes a certain amount of courage, mm -hmm. knowing that nobody has really nailed this, nobody's got right. the right answer. So it takes some courage on their part to be transparent about their numbers. That's number one. Then number two, when we give them feedback, 
we then want to go check to see what are you doing year over year? How do you compare with other firms your size in your geography? So there's a variety of ways in which they can benchmark and get further um, data on it that they can then use to say, what do we need to shore up? What kind of additional programs do we need to create? If the culture needs to be changed, what are the steps we need to take and how are we going to hold people accountable to do that? And I believe law firms that are doing that are seeing year-over-year progress and law firms that don't do that regularly find themselves off the list. Yes, and who knows what else will happen that will be negative as they continue to not grow. By the way, this is Women at Work on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. I'm your host, Laura Zarin. I'm talking with Suba Barry, uh, working um, of Working Mother Media. So, Suba, in the last few minutes that we have, um, if you were going to um, summarize from the report and say, what are the key measures that law firms should be looking at in their own numbers to see, um, are we making progress? Things like, the number of equity partners or participation on committees. What do you think are the really key issues that law firms should be focusing on? So you you know, based on my background, that I am very tied to uh, business results as well as, you know, actual dollars and cents. So I will tell you, in addition to looking at the percentage of equity partners, in addition to looking at policies that you may have around flexibility and leave and, and the usage around it, I would also like you to pay close attention to who, you know, what percentage of women feature in your top 10 rainmakers. Mm. Look at who's bringing in the money and make sure that women feature in that because that is the pathway ultimately to, you know, whether it's uh, serving on, on uh, you know, prominent committees and management committee, etc., or whether it is the kinds of roles that you can play in having clout in your organization. And so is that a two-pronged process? One is identifying who's making money but not being recognized and then helping mentor women so that they can be rainmakers? Absolutely. And if there are people who want to learn more about the survey, the report, what you're doing with Working Mother, where can they find you? Well, they can find us at uh, workingmother.com, and you can look at it. And under our um, uh, various initiatives, you'll see the Best Law Initiative. We have all the information. Uh, it's no longer embargoed. It's public now, so you can come and reach us <laughs> and, and figure out exactly what we say about the various law firms. And we are very, very proud of this work, but we are very proud of our law firms who are really stepping up. Uh, many of them to to really do the hard work. And it can be disheartening when the numbers don't change that much year to year. uh, It's very easy to kind of throw up your hands and walk away. And these law firms are not doing that. No, and they deserve to be celebrated. Suba, thank you so much for the incredible work that you're doing on behalf of all of us and particularly at Working Mother Media. We're honored to have you on the show. Well, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. We need to take a break, but stay with us. When we get back, I'm going to be joined by Laura McKenna, a partner at one of Working Mother's 50 Best Law Firms. I'm Laura Zarrow. You're listening to Women at Work on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 111. And we'll be back to find out what it's like to work at one of the 50 best.